And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. All right, today we've got John Fine. John Fine was in a band called Bitch Magnet, who are kind of like a math rock, like pre-indie rock kind of band. He's going to take um, issue he, with you calling them math rock. I know it. No, he called himself math rock in his book. So I, I think it's okay. Anyway, he is a journalist. Uh, he was the like higher up at Inc. Magazine. He was like a CNBC commentator. So he's kind of like run the gamut being a pretty, pretty big journalist. And he wrote a book called Your Band Sucks, which is just about being in a band, which, you know, like it's really a great guest to have on this podcast because he's kind of done it all and he's actually good at talking about it. Yeah, and the book is incredibly entertaining. Even if you don't give a shit about punk rock or indie rock or whatever you want to call it, the book is great. I actually would suggest listening to it on audio because he reads it too, and it's it's a, it's another level, which was which was great. But I'd say overall, the book has probably about two paragraphs worth of of information about about his work and professional stuff and how it related to the band. So we wanted to dive into that a little bit more, and I think we did a really good job. I think we we touched upon a lot of music stuff, probably more than we usually do. But uh, but there was some really good work stuff in there as well. We didn't touch on that much music stuff. <laughs> I mean, Jesse's going to cut it out. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I, I mean, Charlie's stock tips, particularly. You're that, not that cutting good. that out, are you? No, hell no. I'm counting on that. You should probably say when this was recorded, just in case Tesla tanks after. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> Lighting that fuse. After Tesla stock tanks because Elon Musk tweets about how big his dick is for the 12th time. <laughs> or tweets about how the, the stock is overpriced. Right, yeah, well, yeah, or <laughs> writing 420 should be the valuation. <laughs> what a fucking idiot. <laughs> Keep going. I got puts on this. <laughs> Keep bashing Tesla. <laughs> Most important, John's not a fesser. He is not a fesser. <laughs> yes. All right. Roll the tape. <laughs> All right, John, we usually start this off with you introducing yourself and telling everyone what you do for a living. My name is John Fine. I am a writer. I am an editor. Until recently, I was the editorial director and acting editor-in-chief at Inc. Magazine. And I also do some book doctoring. So I just want to walk through your career a little bit because uh, it's probably a traditional way to get into journalism. And it's probably the way that you did it. Does that sound correct? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like So just, just full disclosure, Dave and I both spent the past, like, so many hours listening to you read your audiobook, which is really weird. Yeah, that is really weird. I had read your book earlier, and I'm glad I listened to it now because it actually 
gives it another level. Oh, thank you. So what, what I understand is your book is not about your work. Your, your book is about the band you're in mm-hmm. and all the, about that. Mm-hmm. So at some point, it seems like you shifted from like, I'm a band guy to I'm a work guy. Does that sound right? And what did that look like? Well, um, there's a section of my book that's Your Band Sucks Listeners, available in a paperback and hardcover in Penguin, um, or Random House, Penguin Random House, or Viking. I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's uh, the Viking imprint, I believe. Um, anyway, there was something that I feel was relatively common among musicians whose bands I knew and loved and um, sometimes had their you know, the good fortune of like touring with, we were all fortunate enough to be in a band that, you know, people cared about. And I know that the people listening to this podcast and you guys understand that I'm not, we're not talking about the fucking Backstreet Boys here, but we're talking about, you know, you could put out a record, some people would buy it, you know, you could, you could go do shows in various towns, maybe even overseas and people would come out and, and, and you know, in varying numbers. And, um, you know, some places were really good, some places were really bad. Some bands did better at that than others. But like all of, all of these bands that I talk about in the book, which I kind of identify as the weirder end of the 80s and 90s, um, you know, indie punk rock scene, you know, they were aggressive, they were kind of weird. Um, all of these bands and the people in the bands basically came to some kind of reckoning, which was that, you know, okay, like we're three albums in, we're four albums in, I'm two or three bands in, and I'm 32 years old, I'm 34 years old, I'm 35 years old. Uh, last year, I got to do this thing that I love once again. And, you know, I made $7,500. I don't have health insurance. I don't really have a marketable skill. I don't know where this is going to go from here. There's this sort of personal reckoning. And it's like, you know, I've got to do something. And the thing that I tried to get across in the book, and which I felt deeply was, I did this. I, I, had to, I had to do it. And the reason why I had to do it was, number one, I was 32 um, I wasn't in a band. I wasn't taking super concrete steps to be in a band. I was doing a lousy job being a freelance writer. Um, I had really significant debt. And what touched off the reckoning, this conversation was like, I was supposed to go out to like, I don't know, like some stupid birthday party with my girlfriend. Like we're going to go bowling with her friends or something. And I called, I had to call her up at work that day. And I was like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I ran out of money. So can you spot me for tonight? And like, she was really pissed off, you know, which I get. And so that weekend to her credit, she sat me down and she's like, okay, you're writing down all the money you made last year and all the debts you have right now. And so the amount of money I made was, I don't know, it was pretty pitiful. Like, I don't know, 38, 39 grand. And then you know, this is New York city. That's, that's, that's not a lot. And I had more than $10,000 in credit card debt. I had several thousand dollars in IRS debt, which is really bad debt to have. Like, I mean, that's like, that, that, that's like, you know, you owe the guys, you know, in the back of the pizza parlor money. I mean, it's bad. Like you don't like it compounds really fast. You're like, Oh, whoa, whoa. Like, holy shit. She just basically was like, you have to get a job or I'm out of here. And like, I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't, I I wanted to keep piddling along in this way that I wanted to do. And I had this idea that it was noble to keep, you know, living a very hand to mouth existence, incurring debt while notionally pursuing this thing that I was sort of pursuing, but not really pursuing. I mean, I was dragged kicking and screaming into this, into adulthood, but, um, I made it, I was scared. Um, you know, like my girlfriend had basically stopped talking to me and, um, I just felt like, um, I felt very unmoored. I felt very unanchored. Um, I was scared. So I made a bunch of phone calls. Like I had done some freelance work for um, a magazine called Advertising Age. And just coincidentally, I was calling up the woman who I worked with sometimes. And I'm like, hey, what's going on, Anne-Marie? And she's like, oh, I just got promoted. Do you want a job? And I was like, well, funnily enough, 
I might. And and like, I mean, I I, I didn't want to do this, but it, it was it was a good job. Like Advertising Age um, covered media and advertising, and I was going to cover basically the New York magazine world and newspapers. Um, you know, t- digital tech media wasn't even a thing then. And it was like, it was like kind of a fun beat, but I mean, I didn't want to do it. And, um, but I didn't have a choice. And, you know, for whatever reason, like I, I, I like, I had had a byline in GQ at that point. And like, you know, the people at Ad Age thought they were getting like this wildly successful freelancer. And I'm looking at them thinking like, guys, like I'm, I'm at the end of my rope here. Like, you know, I, I owe everybody money. Um, like I'm, I'm having these humiliating conversations with my girlfriend. Like uh, other friends of mine have had a job for a year and like, I can't go out to dinner with them. Cause like, I can't afford to do it. Um, but I, I mean, I took the job and it went okay. And I mean, I, I should, I was trying to like leverage that job into a job at the wall street journal. Cause there was an editor there who liked me, but that didn't happen. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do this thing. And, um, you know, I went in kind of terrified to a job that I wasn't quite qualified for. This was being a reporter on a charged with breaking news on a very competitive business speed in New York City. Like I did you had like 10 competitors, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And like they just basically sat me down at a desk with like a, a list of people who I might want to call and like a phone and it was like go. And um it was fucking terrifying. I didn't I like I was way unqualified for that job. They didn't know that. But you know, I guess I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a particularly noble or brilliant individual. Um, but there, there are times in my life when I can take like sort of my basic anxiety and terror and like turn it into industry. And I just work my ass off. And the girlfriend broke up with me, which gave me more of an excuse to spend more time working. And like, it, it worked out. Um, so I, I kind of got lucky. Like there, there were a lot of lucky things that happened to me. Um, but, but I guess the big thing, and I, I hit this point in my book, but I try to hit it in every interview, which is that I knew people who were at my age or older and who were in a similar economic situation and they didn't quit doing music. And forever, I will believe they were the, they're the brave people. I was not, I, I was a coward. I decided I, this is too hard. I can't do it anymore. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still believe that. And like, I'm lucky it is, it has worked out reasonably well. And so to that point, John, do you feel like you, you know, you said you took, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but taking the coward's way out. I mean, what's a more noble way to do that? I mean, is there a way that you could have stayed in music and parlayed it into something else that wasn't performing? So like looking at someone like, you know, Steve Albini, is that a more noble pursuit in the fact that you can have a job in music that pays you a living wage, but you're not, you know, entering the corporate world the way that you did. Well, I should make fun of you guys because, like, we we barely started, and you're already bringing up Steve Albini. So, I mean, like, guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I just, kind of. I guess I'm thinking of the like. I think the noble thing in my mind, you know, which is a ludicrously purist point of view, was that like I should just, you know, cut my expenses and like, you know, join a join in a join a group house. Um, I, I like a crazy rent deal at the time. I was like, I had a really disgusting notionally two bedroom, but it was like 800 bucks a month. And I was like, you know, I mean, if I needed to, I could have cut that cost, you know, it was in 2000, you know, and, and try to make something happen. But like, I was, I mean, number one, basically I didn't, but I, I was just kind of exhausted. Like I just, I kind of couldn't fight. I couldn't, I couldn't fight anymore. Like I didn't, I felt, um, I felt that the, the, the kinds of music that I liked, like they were kind of going out and um, just things had changed in a way that I, I couldn't really navigate. I'm very good friends with Chris Brokaw, who um, we, we both went to college together. Did, does that mean anything to you guys? Probably Jesse, but, he's, but he left for a minute. I mean, Chris, Chris has, um, Chris is a full-time musician. He's never been in anything famous. Uh, he was in the band Come, which you guys have probably heard of. And like, he's, 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 he's like 
been a side man with Steve Wynn and Thurston Moore. And like, he's made it work. He's older than him. He's made it work. Um, you know, he's not living a lavish life, but he's made it work. And I have a lot of respect for that. Like, but he's a kind of a guitar player that I'm not like, I mean, he's more, he's more skilled than I am. I didn't have any skills in the studio. Um, I mean, I just, I had nothing. Like I had, I had the one thing that I could kind of do. And like, I just, yeah, I mean, I couldn't go metal, you know, I mean, I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't go singer songwriter. I mean, like it was just, I mean, I just had this one thing and like, you know, for, there's a lot of ways to pick this apart, I guess. Like, you know, like you could have notionally, you could take a crash course in studio techniques. Notionally, you can lock yourself in your room and teach yourself how to play metal and join a really commercial kind of metal band. I mean, I don't know. But why is that better than working for advertising age? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what what's worse? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, honestly, I would think that playing in like a shitty like commercial band that you don't believe in would be a lot worse. Um, would you Would you play in a band that's... That said, hair and attitude a must. Well, <laughs> you know, I still had long hair. I still had long hair at the time, and I definitely had attitude, but but not not that kind of thing. I mean, so advertising age required you that when you went for the interview. Did they say that? It said must have chops. They, 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 they were actually they, they were weirdly excited that I had long hair, but I ended for for other reasons related to my girlfriend. I cut it off uh, before I got there, mostly because like I was getting the Ben Franklin, like it was bald on top, and it looked really bad. Like you know, it's the kind of long hair where you've got the the bald hair on top, and it, then there's just kind of like the long hair. Around. It's it's just it, it's it the makes, skirted I, skirted eggshell. Yeah, exa- yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you you look like you're 65 years old if if, if like no matter how old you are doing that. I, I would have felt worse, quote unquote, compromise musically than going to work for a trade publication that's basically aimed at making people in advertising, um, you know, like that, that is explicitly geared towards those people. I'm not putting those people down. I'm, I've never worked in advertising, but the key thing was this, like I didn't have, I didn't have any, I felt like I didn't have any moves and I didn't have any time. And I was for good or real kind of desperate to hang on to that girlfriend who we broke up in three months anyway. So who cares? But um, that should tell you something about that. She said she was going to break up with you. You didn't have a job and she broke up with you and you got the job. Yeah. And I mean, I got zero regrets because now I'm very happily married and like, and like, you know, that, that relationship was not going to go any further, but it was like, I don't know. It was like, it, I was, it was a fucking vulnerable. I mean, look, I feel like you have to like, you know, bracket all this shit. Like, I mean, I grew up very comfortably. My dad's a doctor. Like, you know, I wasn't going to like starve to death in any event, but like, I felt very vulnerable. Like, I mean, I, I felt like I just didn't have a lot of stuff going on and I didn't have a lot of stuff. I couldn't Did do. you ever think about getting like an internship with your dad as a doctor so he could like teach you the trade? Yeah. I don't think it really works that way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> damn, damn, coll- damn colleges. It's not like barber school. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all, all this credentialism bullshit. Um, also, like, I'm, I, I, I love my dad. He's one of the more important people in my life, and he's still around. But like, like working with my dad would just not. It would not be a good idea. It would not be. A good well, you know something? I, I understand your conflict with the band and advertising age because one time with the band, we slept in a basement, and there was an advertising age on the table there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did it affect your sleep, Charlie? Jay Falk, Jay Falkliff's house. That the extent of the story, Charlie, because I feel like we're missing some of the arc, and they're like. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the, just what i remember you know you're sleeping in a basement with everything age, age there you're kind of selling out right there you know it wasn't like some some squat where we could say we stayed at the squat man we stayed in a freaking ad executive's house so take that <laughs> <out>. <laughs> yeah, i mean like when, when, when we were on tour and it was like, oh, you know, we're, we're going to Champagne. We get to stay with the poster children. They have a house. Like, you know, like, I'll have my own bedroom. This is so exciting. You know, like, <laughs> like, like we, you, you, you'd, you'd set up, like, fucking itineraries because, like, well, I mean, I never – I never had this option, but it was like, if there was someone outside of Milwaukee who lived with their parents in a crazy huge house, like, goddamn right, Milwaukee is on every fucking tour itinerary for the rest of my life, you know? <laughs> Jesus. 
God. Anyway, <laughs> but so so you start so you started at age. Obviously, I mean, I had done a sim. You know, my my career trajectory was a, was pretty similar in the fact that I I I work in PR and marketing, but I got I I came to it very late. And uh, I think you know, probably having your girlfriend leave you is probably the best thing to happen at that time because you're going to have to drink from the fire hose. I hate using that term, but you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to do a lot of catch up as far as, you know, learning what the hell you're supposed to be doing. But obviously it seems like you did that pretty quickly. How much of that, you know, I always felt like, and one of the things that we talk about a lot uh, on the podcast is what you learned from being in bands, what you learned from the scene, all that stuff that like is almost like your superpower in corporate situations where you can almost use that to get ahead without people even realizing you're doing it. Did you notice that that was something that you were using as you kind of transitioned or was that something that you were completely, you know, flailing in the deep end and somehow found your way? I hate to do this, but it's kind of both. I mean, there are a lot of threads in that, question you know it's, it's a really interesting one so let, let, let me let, I ramble so yeah pick the ones you want to do <laughs> you want to deal with <laughs> let me try to pick them all apart and if i if i forget any it's because i forgot them because i have the memory of a gnat at this point so number one there, there there are kind of different cadences to journalism uh and th- this was especially true in 2000 where there was like there was like a daily newspaper there was a weekly magazine which at age was um and then there was like the monthly magazine which is crazy and like the advantage and and so i was in a weekly magazine but we were like constantly breaking news online when like this was a wild novelty so like it was it was the, the news cycle was very quick and number one that's terrifying but number two um it's a great adrenaline rush which which I kind of related to because, you know, th- th- there was adrenaline rush associated with like performing and they're not the same, but like I, I tend to chase that kind of feeling. Um, but also like, you know, I had, you had to learn very quickly because things came at you very fast. Like my first, by my first, by my, I think by my third day of work, I'd already written two stories. And by my fourth day, I'd written like five and I went up to my boss and I was like, Hey, you know, like, um, I've written more stories than like days I've been here. Isn't that impressive? And he was like, no, that's called doing your job. Like, come, come back. <laughs> I mean, you know what? He's right. Like, like th- that's a fucking job. And so w- w- when you have to learn that quickly, you learn, you, you have to learn fast if you're going to learn. And like, I am friendly with David Granger. He used to be the editor in chief of Esquire. And I was talking to him once about, you know, when he started there and like, he, he came to Esquire, he, he built, I don't know if you guys are magazine nerds and it's fine. You're not. And listeners aren't, but Esquire was a great magazine under great, great, great. But when he came there, like there was no staff, it was completely like demoralized and like he had to like build it up from nothing. And he said it was really maddening because like if you fucked up something in an issue, like it took it so long for you to do it again. So like the learning curve, like, like it's like his learning curve was six months in some ways. And for what mine was in six weeks, although he's much smarter than me and he probably pulled off faster because like, you know, I, I just had to turn around shit quickly. So there was that. The other thing was, so I was a breaking news reporter and like, you know, this basically means those five articles were going, those five articles were going in the magazine or some of them were just online or it was both. It was, it was both at that time. But I mean, like, like in the first, the first, I had at least two bylines in the, in the first magazine that came out after I was there. Um, but yeah, I mean like you, you were constantly banging stuff online. Cause like if you, if you found breaking news on the speed, you had to put it online. Anyway, I'm getting too much in the mechanics of journalism, but back, back to the rock thing. Um, so you're a breaking news reporter. And like, this basically means in those days, like you're just calling people up and trying to get them to tell them, tell you shit that they wouldn't. And, you know, I used to, I would generally take the lead in booking shows for my band. So I was very comfortable calling people up, calling total strangers up out of nowhere. And like within 30 seconds, convincing them to interact with me and, and like give me some aspect of what I want. So, you know, that, that was really useful. Some, some people are really freaked out by that, but I was like, Okay, so you know, today I've got to call thirty people I've never talked to before. Fine, 
Okay. Like every band that. that gets anywhere needs at least one person in the band that does that. I've, yeah. see, I've worked with, I've played with great bands that don't get anywhere because they don't have that one person in the band that does that. Yeah. And like, like bitch magnet early on, it was both Sue Young and me who were doing that. And like, like we were just kind of like sitting around, like, I think we probably had like a stolen credit card or something. And we're like, okay, um, I guess we should try to set up a show in uh, Boston because we're, you know, we're going to be at John's parents' house this, you know, so, so I was very used to that. And like the other stuff, I mean, I feel like we've, we've, we're kind of answering one of the very big questions that you guys like to ask early on, which is fine. But what else did I learn? You know, I was used to working with very minimal resources. You know, like I remember when I got my next job, when I was hired by Business Week to be their media columnist, like I, like the IT guy came to meet me on the first day and he's like, how's it going? And I'm like, well, this computer's kind of messed up. He's like, okay, we'll get you a brand new one. And I was like, what? Wait, wait, what? <laughs> You're getting me a new computer? And I was like, wow, this is like, I, I, I just thought I'd be banging on this kind of crappy thing. Because, you know, the, the first van that Bitch Magnet bought, I think it cost, I don't know, $800, like $800 plus a backseat that we had to have installed. I mean, um, I, w- I was used to doing stuff on nothing and with very little resources and you just kind of, and, and you just kind of figure shit out. Um, so like they're the, the kind of the, the, the big picture things. And then there's other aspects of it that are more debatable and less um, positive perhaps. Yeah. You can just say some things are outright negative is fine too. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's like, for instance, I mean, I, I've, I've generally been able to work this out, but like, I mean, I'm used to operating with an enormous amount of autonomy. Um, and I was talking to Sue Young about a version of this some time ago when we were like, you know, reuniting and he, he became an entrepreneur after a uh, bitch magnet. And he, and he was basically like, I, I don't like people telling me what to do. And, and, and my thing is like, I don't mind necessarily being told you need to do X, but I like to be left alone to figure out how to do X. Um, and like, and that can be a good thing in certain organizations and it can be a really bad thing in other organizations. And, um, I've experienced both of those. Are you comfortable telling other people what to do? Cause we've seen, we've talked to a lot of people who, I guess, because of their punk rock upbringing, feel weird being a manager. I hope this doesn't make me a terrible person, but no. Um, and <laughs> like, I mean, so, so we're, we're kind of skipping ahead, but like my last uh, job, like I was hired to be executive editor at Inc., which is basically like one tick down from the editor in chief. So, you know, very quickly I had to get used to, and, and like, you know, like I would realize this early on, I was like, oh my God, I've got to do 80 different things. And then, then I was like, oh wait. Actually, I can have I can tell this person to do that thing and, and have this person do that aspect of that thing. And, and furthermore, that I'm kind of expected to do that. And um, yeah, I I probably did at a certain time. And you know, I probably noticed this in like in other realms of life. Like for instance, if like the repair guy has to come to the house to fix something that I can't fix because I can't fix anything. I mean, forget it. Like I'm always sort of apologetic around them, and my wife thinks that's like just completely preposterous. But like I, I guess like in the back of my head, I feel like I should know how to fix the cable. I should know how to fix the air conditioning or like you know, plumbing, whatever the fuck it is. I, I stay away from electrical because you can die, you know. So in the in work situations, like I've gotten used to, um, I've, I've gotten used to that part of it. I'm working off of my own personal experience here because I, I didn't expect to be in the position that I'm in now and, you know, working for an agency that works with a lot of luxury brands and five-star hotels and things like that. Uh, I had a moment where I was like, similar to what you said, you know, I remember when I first, uh, first started at the job, I had to fill out a form with preferences. And one of them was, you know, what class do I want to fly when I travel? And I said, well, can I check first class here? Yeah. Can I, can I check business class every time? And they were like, (laughs) if you want. And I was like, well, then who would pick coach? And they were like, some people do, you know, but you know, it it was, it was crazy to me because it was an entirely different world. And, you know, I, I got used to it 
And then I hated myself for getting used to it. Did you have a similar thing there where, you know, it's, it's, you start realizing that not that you've become a different person, but that you've, you know, kind of indulged parts of you that you didn't even think maybe existed. Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, but I mean, I'm comfortable with, I mean, I'm kind of comfortable with most of it just because like it's, you know, these are different environments and actually, wow, this kind of opens up a lot of stuff. I mean, one of my enormous frustrations with the sort of, um, you know, the, I really hate the term indie, but I just don't know what else to use. The underground scene I came out of was like, there was this kind of willful modesty. There was like, you know, like you couldn't admit that you wanted something really badly. Like you couldn't express that. Like that was kind of uncool. Um, Like you could, you could even see it in like people's body language. It shows like everyone held themselves like they were kind of ashamed of themselves. And like, I got really, I got really frustrated and angry about that after a while. And I mean, like, you know, it didn't push me to be like, well, fuck that shit. I'm going to like, you know, write songs for Madonna or whatever. Um, or I'm going to start this, this band with like an incredibly nakedly commercial, um, intent. And like, we are going to take over the world that way. I mean, that, that just wasn't what I was into, but like, it just made me so crazy that like, you know, there was such a troubled relationship with power and wanting power and expressing power. And like, one of the reasons why I got into this music was because it felt really powerful. Like it felt powerful and exhilarating and frankly out of control like it was so powerful and like the the experiences that i had on stage like playing this really loud music to people who were reacting to it the the power of it was really important i mean like the feeling i mean I'm, i'm basically quoting the book here but it's true it's like you know when you first plug in the guitar and like you play a song you know you're like wow this is like you know the volume of it is really powerful when you Add in a bass player and especially a drummer, you're like, wow, like I'm really feeling this. And then like when you add in the live audience element, it comes even more powerful. And then when the live audience is throwing energy back at you and they're really responding to it, I mean like, man, that's like, I mean, that, that, that that's it. And like, I felt that I saw so many. Why did you leave out the lead singer? Because, you know, they're, well, <laughs> that, that's a really good question because I mean, because I always identify more with the music of it. And, um, and like, you know, vocals were not particularly important in my band. And like, I, I used what? to, I used to provide, I used to try to pick fights with friends of mine who are in more melodic bands. And I'd be like, you're going to fight with me right now. Eh, you know, <laughs> I look, I mean, I've come around, I've come around on a lot of this shit. It's like, like Leonard Cohen is one of my all time, all times. I mean, you know, but, but like, I mean, in the nineties, I would just go up to friends who are in melodic bands and these were good friends. And I'd just be like, yeah, like uh, vocal melodies are bullshit. Lyrics don't matter. And like, you know, they would get upset and I would, and I, I don't know. I don't know what I was trying to prove except that I was just kind of an asshole, but I mean, but the, well, I, I could deal with the melodies don't matter, but the, the, the <laughs> lyrics, <laughs> lyrics not mattering. That's a different story. So we, we, we found we found the uh, head of the pain that we could dance on together. I love it. I mean, are you equating the power of being on a stage in front of an audience to the power of ordering a hot towel on first class? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm afraid that being on stage is a little more powerful than uh, ordering. Also, I think you don't order the hot towel on first class. They just bring, they it, just to bring it to you. They <laughs> just bring it to you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys would know. Um, so, 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 Peasants. But, but, but more seriously, like, you know, everyone was, like, ashamed of power. Everyone was ashamed of, like, being even slightly performative. I mean, no one could look each other in the eye. I mean, I'm, I'm making wild generalizations here, but like, I just saw a lot of it and it made me crazy. And, you know, at a certain point, just to like, you know, w- what's wrong with being like, you know, yeah, like we're in a band and I think like we're fucking great. And like, you know, I'm not saying we're going to be number one on the charts, but we're going to push this as far as we goddamn can. And like, yeah, goddamn right. We want to tour Europe and Japan and Australia. And like, you just, you didn't hear people talking like that. And I found that very strange and frustrating. And I mean, I guess at a, at a certain point, like, you know, you just be, become comfortable 
I don't know. God, I, I, anything I say here sounds really corny. Like accepting yourself as having some agency in the world and recognizing that you have appetites and you have a means to, you know, express them. And also that, you know, on a, on a much more quotidian level, that in, if you work in an organization where there are other people, um, you actually can't do everything yourself. And it's a bad idea to do everything yourself. And just because in like you're, you know, in your, in the trio that you cut your teeth in and that you learned all this stuff and there was no one to do stuff, that's not true anymore. Like, you know, you're at a workplace, there's 50 people there. They're there to do things. And if you're at a certain uh, part in the organization, it's part of your job to get them to do things. And I mean, that's, that is what it is. And like, some people aren't, aren't comfortable with that. And that's cool. I mean, like, you know, in media, which is for good or ill, where I've, you know, spent my life, like there, there are two ways ahead. Like one is you become like the solo practitioner, like, you know, you're the star writer on a publication, you write books, you know, you're the anchor on TV, or you go into management and you like rise up the ranks and then you're like running a newsroom or something. And like, I don't, both are valid. Um, I, it turned out that I thought I was only, I only liked one thing and it turned out, I found out at Inc that I, I liked the other two. Cool. I mean, so when you started in, like, I have this idea of being in writing for newspapers and magazines back in the, the some golden age, like everything was like money was getting tossed around completely, but the, you know, the business has changed. Did you get a taste of that life? Right. Like the, here's your, bu- here's your budget. Here's your expense account. I don't know. <laughs> well, so, so I never had an expense account. Well, well, I mean, it was never presented as like you have X dollars to spend per month. Cause like, you know, I would, you would go out to meals with, you know, sources and like, it would be expected you would pay a portion of the time. Um, you know, if you had to go somewhere to write a story, like, you know, yeah, you, you find a reasonably priced hotel room, you find a reasonably priced price flight you go none of the organizations i worked for were particularly lavish but i mean when i was covering media like i definitely rubbed up against people that's a very bad phrase when i was covering media <laughs> there's a hashtag for that yeah, yeah there, there is yeah and, and, and it, oh, oh guys i can't do the podcast anymore i've been canceled nice talking um, <laughs> when i was covering media i would cover executives at organizations like condi and ask which publishes the new yorker and vogue and were legendary for crazy expense accounts and like they were clearly operating in in a much crazier um, world than I was. Like, for instance, um, I was out to lunch with one executive at um, Condé Nast somewhere in the early 2000s when things were still good there. And she wanting to flex a little, and this was a common flex in in the industry. Like, she took me to the Four Seasons for lunch, where I guess, I don't know, lunches, (laughs) I don't know, like... That's uh, the power lunch place, or it was. And and, and like, let's say, like, lunch would be, like, you know, you'd have a hamburger and a salad, and you know, the other person has the same and it's $250. And so like, you know, it's the end of the meal. And like, I'm like, well, great. Thank you. And I was like, where's the check? She's like, oh, don't worry about it. They just, you know, they, they just like give it to me at the end of the month. And I was like, oh, wait. So like you come here multiple times, like you do this? <laughs> I was like, you know, yeah. And like you, you would hear stories about, I mean, most of the crazy stuff I heard was stuff that had happened. But I mean, I, I, I so one story, so I went to, there was an annual magazine publishers conference. And in the year 2000, my first year covering it, it was in Puerto Rico um, at a pretty nice resort. But, you know, one relatively small publisher, if I remember correctly, like flew down on a private plane. Like, I mean, that's just crazy. That's that's what I was getting at. I mean, so since then, though, like, has there been an extreme belt tightening that you might have not felt as much as others? There's been an extreme belt tightening. And um, so full disclosure, I, I when I left Inc., um, I left Inc. because they didn't make me editor-in-chief full-time. And like they, they wanted me to stay. I elected to leave. But I also signed a non-disclosure agreement. So I'm kind of limited on some of the things I can say. Um, but broadly speaking, yeah, I mean, if you're in media, 
your job will continually be trying to do the same things or more with less money. I mean, that's, that's just the way it goes. And like, but I understood that. So it, and it didn't bother me. And like, honestly, I don't, I'm lucky I've done well. My, my wife's a successful entrepreneur. Like it, it doesn't crush me if like, I can't expense the, the fancy lunch I have with somebody like I, I'm, I'm fine. It, it just doesn't. You didn't have to go on to the other side. I mean, working on the, the PR side of it, you know, we, we represent a lot of spirits brands. We have journalists that come to our events, not because they want to write about our product, but because they know there's going to be free drinks or free food. I mean, that, that, that's been true forever. I mean, like years ago, like back when there wasn't the internet, I remember reading in Harper's Magazine, like the 1990s, there was basically a, like a newsletter or like whatever you call it, like a pamphlet that was basically like kind of handed out secretly to staffers in Washington, D.C. on the Hill. And it was basically like how to eat for free because you're making no money. And it was, you know, it was basically strategies for getting into like every lobbyist's, you know, kind of like catered events, you know, like if there's drinks and like, it had had advice on which lobby, which lobbying firms and which lobbying organizations had like the best spreads. And they even had like advice on what to say if like some random guy from the lobbying firm came up to you and like, what you're supposed to do is not very seriously and say that, um, you know, your congressperson, your senator was thinking deeply about the issues, particularly with regard to the tax implications. Like, like th- that was the one thing you were supposed to say all the time. So anyway, by the way, you're supposed to laugh at that story, you assholes, but um, this, wait, this, so- wait, this sounds like a, a professional version of a fanzine <laughs> that tells you how to dumpster dive. Does that sound right? Well, basically, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, that, I, although, I mean, when you're dumpster diving, you're not getting free shrimp and like unlimited booze. So, well, you, you were not going to the right dumpster, I think. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I don't know if I want shrimp from the dumpster. Like, there, there, there's certain things that, uh, like, like, you know, dry goods are fine, you know, but, uh, you but, know, you're, shrimp, but you're, you're setting that precedence. Like, if you want to get into journalism, it's like, hey, live like a homeless person. Well, I mean, that's, that's journal, what it says to me, right? Has never been a profession in which to make a lot of money. And I, my, my generation is the generation after the last generation that did like well in it. Um, uh, I mean, you know, th- th- there were people, reasonably high ranking editors in like, like Time Magazine that would buy a very nice house in Westchester on their salary. Like that doesn't exist anymore for both real estate reasons and salary reasons. But I mean, yeah, I mean, n- no one goes into journalism to get rich. Seems like you, you fell into like the business reporting and that kind of thing. Is there a reason you picked that or it just kind of happened naturally? Because you never worked at these type of companies that you reported on. Does that matter? Well, I mean, I was writing about media and I had a lot of friends in media and I'd worked in media. I mean, it, it just happened that way. All this shit is happenstance. I mean, I, I, I got the job at Advertising Age. Um, five years later, the editor who I was in touch with at the Wall Street Journal, who I tried to get me to hire when I was about to get hired by Ad Age, he called me up one day and said, all right, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody this, but I'm the new editor-in-chief of business this week. I want to start a media column and you should try out for it because I'm really interested in you. And I wrote a few columns for him on spec and he liked it and he hired me. And so then, all right, I'm at another business publication. And um, I mean, I've done other stuff in the interim. I was running in between Business Week and um, Inc. I was briefly involved in a very short-lived startup with my wife and um, a couple of other people. Uh, I was I, I was an editorial director at Magnum Photos, the photo agency, and we we're trying to figure out how to build a media organization out of that. But I mean, you know, you, you, you tend to like get hired for the things that you know you have some experience in and so and well, then what honestly, kind of startup was it across. what kind of startup was it um it was kind of a pinterest but aimed at documenting no um it was more like facebook by the way this is an idea from 2009 <laughs> or 10, but it was it was the idea of doing facebook but for like the life of a creative project i, I mean I, they're probably analogs now um like behance is kind of like that it, it was a reasonably good idea like we 
Yeah, there are a lot of reasons why it didn't work and it probably wouldn't work. So, so it was a project management tool. It had aspects of that, but it was more like showing off like your creative project to the world while also being a project management tool. And like the idea being that, that there would be lots of opportunities to, you know, advertisers would want to be around certain parts of projects and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it, it was a pretty good idea. Um, for a lot of reasons it didn't happen. And honestly, I don't even remember what they are at this point because it was a long time ago. Well, I know there's, there's, you know, you said there's some things that you might not be able to talk about, but, uh, in regards to ink, um, but I know, I want to be clear. I did, I had an excellent experience at ink. I mean, I really liked working there. I really liked the people I worked with. Um, you know, ultimately I didn't get the job that I wanted and I left that, that, that's it. But anyway, carry on. Well, I was going to say, as these companies started to look at new revenue models and looked at monetizing content or creating, you know, I know, you know, things like the Inc. 5000 came out, you know, all these, these, these programs that were not necessarily editorial programs, but were promotional programs. I don't know exactly what word you would call them. Was that something that you were involved in as well, or did you stay strictly editorial? Well, I was involved in everything at Inc. I was involved in all editorial stuff and all editorial programming, which includes events. And I, I have to uh, correct you, um, the Inc. 500 has been around for decades. I, I mean, I don't have the number in front of me, but like probably north of 30 years. Um, no, but it, didn't they introduce the 5,000? The 5,000 is, is a more recent invention. I mean, like it, it's all, but I mean, like it wasn't like, it, it's not something that happened in the last two or three years. I mean, it, it's, it's all been around for, for quite some time. It's a very good business it, and it's a very, it's a very interesting business. And I mean, one of the things I really liked about Inc. was that there was a dimensionality to it. Like there was a podcast I was involved in. There was, you know, new stuff, new ventures we were doing online that I was involved in. And there was programming live events that I had a really big hand in, which I, I really liked. I mean, because you know it's getting on stage and talking to people, and that's and it's it's just kind of cool. And there's there is something about gathering people together, which of course now we know because we miss it so fucking badly. <laughs> but I mean, like I, I've always been, you know, like it, it, that was cool. One of the things that surprised me about Inks going to it from someone who'd just been a writer was that on one hand, like oh, I'm going into management, it's going to be boring. But what turned out was that there was so much more dimensionality to it, and there there was just so much more stuff to do, and so many more different ways to like make shit happen. Um, I, I really liked it. I I really really liked it. And I was surprised how much I liked it. You went on the record on in your book talking about how much you didn't or you had never been to a music festival. You seemed dubious about, you know, what they were before the the art all tomorrow's parties that that uh, Bitch Magnet played at. But you did a lot of tech conferences and things like that. And I know you've spoken at a lot of those things. Do you see a similarity there? Are those things that you love or do you just love the moment that you're on stage? I bet you there's more shrimp. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the catering is generally quite good. Um, I remember once when I was like a completely broke dude, like even before um, Ad Age, when I was, I was writing a newsletter about the newspaper industry, if you can imagine that. And like I was like 27 or 28, there was the newspaper publishers conference in San Francisco. And this was a nice conference. Like I was staying at the fucking Fairmont. And um, dudes, like the like spreads at the um, like the receptions. I mean, I was totally broken. I was like, oh my god, like I could eat a hundred oysters. Like they're sitting right there. Oh my fucking god. So so um, I never. I guess I never traveled to a music festival. Like there were music festivals in New York that I would go to because like you know we'd play at CMJ or you know new music seminar or like I would just go to see the show because I was in town. Tech conferences. I mean. I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's cool. Um, it's very different from a music festival for all the obvious reasons. Um, but I, I think, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry to keep doing this. I mentioned this in my book. But, like, I remember once, like, I was 
moderating a panel at some tech related conference. I think in San Francisco, I don't even remember. And like, we're, we're quote unquote backstage and it is a backstage. Like there's like, you know, like scaffolding up and everything and like AV equipment. And we're about to go on stage and like, I'm like kind of getting a little, like the adrenaline's going, like, like it, it's, it's waking up all that feeling. And like, I'm kind of getting loose and I'm kind of bouncing around and I'm talking fast. And like, I'm trying to like, just sort of bullshit with the people on my panel. And like a couple minutes into it, I'm like, oh, like they don't have this pre-performance thing. Like this is something they have to do. Like they, they have no memory of like, we're going to go on stage. We're going to play a show. This is exciting. They were just like, I've got to do this. And I've got to remember to make three, these three points. Like they just had no experience of like showtime. They had no experience of like, we're at the show and like you're, you're on tour and your whole day builds up to this, you know? And like, there are peaks and valleys, but right before you go on stage, like there's that like, you know, adrenaline rush. Like they didn't have any of that. And I was like, oh, that's right. This experience is, to- my experience is totally different from theirs. Um, so, I mean, I always liked, I like going on stage. I like public speaking. I like doing podcasts. I love doing the Ink podcast. My wife and I, we live in a, she's, she's done very well. And like, we live, we live in a pretty nice apartment. Um, and so like, you know, we, we, back when we could do these things, we would have dinner parties with like, you know, tech entrepreneurs and journalists and kind of like interesting people. And like, I would moderate, you know, dinner discussions at these. And you know, we, we do a couple of these a month. And like, I, I really dig that. You know, and there's something to, it's reading an entirely different audience and responding to an audience in a much more interactive way than just like, I'm turning on my guitar. It's going to be 120 decibels. I'm going to fucking flatten you. (laughs) But but I mean, but I mean, I like it. You know, I like, I like it. I like it too. And like, how how do you, how do you moderate a dinner discussion? Cause you know, usually my experience with dinner discussions, just Friday with my in-laws or something. Well, okay. So, so, so so you sit down and you go around. uh, So if, if it's people you don't know, you sit down and you go around in like 30 seconds, they, you ask them, everyone to introduce themselves, their name, like what their, whatever relevant affiliation there is. And like some funny thing, like, like, you know, something about you that nobody knows or like confess one unpopular opinion, although that can go very far south. So like Rick Moranis <laughs> in Ghostbusters when he has the holiday party. Uh, which I've never seen, I'm sad to say. What, what do you do? <laughs> oh. I, I know, I know, I'm terrible. Ah, uh, forget it. Never mind. And the idea of a dinner discussion is that like people are responding to like one question and the moderators, you, you, you have to have a pretty firm hand. Like you let people talk, but if they go on too long, you cut them off. Um, one thing that I like to do is sometimes like if, if I'm doing this in a professional place. Like if I'm doing this ring, it's like you cut people off after a minute. Like, okay, you have a minute to respond and then it, it's gone. Cause like people will go on and on. I could, I could go on and on about this. Like there, there's whole stuff to it. So, so we should, should we start doing that right now? I saw some French <laughs> movie about this where they like set a guy up on this. They had dinner party and they fed him over cause he was a moron and they made fun of him. It was oh, like that's that. like dinner with schmucks. That yeah, that, that, that's kind of not no, what I'm talking was... about. <laughs> that's brutal. That's fucking brutal. The French uh, original French version I saw too. It's also good. but they got they got their comeuppance at the that's end. That's right. Well, they, they, I, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, so was, was Hold on. Now, now I want to quiz your. Usually, I hate everything French, but in that case, it's funny. <laughs> Do All you I'm have, saying is that there's a reference. It is like whistling right over my head right now. So, you know, I mean, shoot you, me. you had a, an image of yourself on stage. Do you have an image of yourself at work? Because we, we talked to your coworker and he said, first impression of you. <laughs> we talked to Jeff Berkovici. Am I saying his last yeah. name right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Berkovici, and I was pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> uh, he actually, he described you as. Uh, Some research you guys did. You can't even get the guy's <laughs> name right. 
you are the you were the cool creative director. Um, he he compared you to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but he was supposed to be cool in that. That was cool, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 on it's on a kind of a sliding scale for that. I think. You know? <laughs> I think um, I think it's exa- he was trying to pinpoint it, and that Jeff Goldblum cool in Jurassic Park is what he was talking about. Damn it, Sam Fraser. But well, I mean, uh, I, I used to try to hide it. Because I, I, I just didn't want to talk about it, you know, and you could hide it for a long time. You know, it, it, Google was around, but like weird punk rock bands didn't, weren't omnipresent on the internet, like until, I don't know, the 2010. So like, I didn't tell people about it in um, Business Week really at all. And like, it, eventually after a few years, they kind of figured it out. Um, especially because I was in a band at the time and I was also like going on tour to, I'd be like, all right, I need to go on vacation for two weeks because we're going to Japan. So like, you know, it got known. But um, yeah, like I, I, I was pretty straight up about it. Um, and I guess, you know, there was a time, you know, at like at Business Week, we're like, oh, you're in a rock band, you're kind of cool. Whereas now like, oh, you're in a rock band, you're the old white guy. <laughs> and like, it took me a long time to figure out that that's kind of the thing. It's like all of your pop culture references are going to be way dated. Like there's nothing cool about whatever interaction you had with whatever punk rock figure, like people who under the age of 35, they just don't fucking care. And and no one's heard of this shit. I was super impressed with your East Bay Ray uh, anecdote from the book. I mean, oh God, I love that. I love that story. It's so sad though. That I thought about that for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give away too much of your books. I want people to read it, but the the, the parts of the book that relate to this podcast are like two paragraphs. So it's fine. (laughs) You know, you guys were asking about like what the budgets were like. And so I, when I was a, Business Week, I also had a contract where I would do on-air commentary for CNBC, which again, I really liked because it was showtime and it was live. So like, you know, it was in the moment and like there, there was someone that I was frequently on with and I knew how to like fuck with that person and I knew how to like get a reaction out of it and it was fun. And like, and also like what a lot of people, well, what I realized with TV is that there's a rhythm. And so like, I would sit there like listening to the rhythm of how, listening to the rhythm of how the newscasters were talking about kind of like like kind of talk it out. So like I would, I would like be on B and I, 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 know, I got, really I thought you'd that. fuck but with it. One of the things, no, 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 no. I wanted, to, I wasn't going to do it in, I wasn't going to do it in seven, four time. Like, cause, cause they couldn't play along. So your, your commentary but is not math rock but, you know, at all. No, it was not. No, no, you, you, you gotta, you, you had to make it comprehensible to the masses. You know what I mean? Um, but you know, it was TV. They probably still do this. And like, they would call me up there like, okay, John, we need you to talk about blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, fine, I can do it. And they're like, okay, can you be at studio, whatever in 45 minutes? And I was like, great. And they'd be like, do you need a car to take you there to anywhere you're going afterwards? And like, I'd be like, okay, so I work at Business Week, which is at 49th and 6th Avenue. And you're asking me to go to the NBC studio, which is across the street. <laughs> so I appreciate the offer for the black car, but I'm okay. But, but I mean, like, like this was what they, and, and, but then they'd be like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. They'll I'm leave sure. it waiting Thank for you, you know? to go take you wherever you want to go afterwards, right? I mean, if you're like, oh yeah, take. They, yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. And like, I mean, that I would totally do. Cause like, you know, cause like I was living in Brooklyn. I was like, yeah, sure. And then I would, my thing was I would call my mom up cause she'd watch and it, I, I felt like, you know, it was, it was nice. It was very good for my ego. Let's just say. How far could you have taken that? Could you have been like, I want to go to 11 Madison park for dinner afterwards? Well, I mean, they, they would drop you off there. Sure. I mean, but you could, you could not expense dinner, but I mean, I did know people that pushed it pretty far. And there was one day where my mother-in-law was in town and, um, I like, I was going to have to like break off from hanging out with my wife and my mother-in-law to go do, uh, what we call a hit, like, you know, a TV hit. And they called me up like 15 minutes beforehand. And they were like, all right, John, like there's breaking news and we can't do your segment, but we've already set up a car for you. Do you want to have it for the afternoon? And I was like, yeah, I think we'll take that car. And then like, we drove my mother-in-law around shopping, you know, in the back of a black car. So uh, I'm, I'm torching whatever punk rock bread I might have left. I'm sure I know. 
But I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And, and but, but the crazy thing is like, and I mean, I'm not justifying this in any punk rock way because, I mean, I did it and I'm glad I did. But it was like that money, that, that was paid for. Like, I mean, like they, they had already like signed the guy up and God knows how much it cost. Jesus. But yeah, like, so I used the car for two hours and like they were totally fine with it. And I think like, I, I, I think I knew a guy who would be like, yeah, I would, you know, I'd, I did a, a hit at like 11 a.m. and then I'd like have the car drive me around for the rest of the day. I'm like, wait, for the rest of the day? And he's like, yeah. I was like, wait. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Yes. The East Bay Race yes. story. Oh, yes. Please tell that. Yeah. So. So, all right, so I'm 30. I've got really long hair. I want to have a question first about this hit. How much do they pay you for a hit, and is it more than the mafia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, at at first it was free, but then I was on contract, so it was a certain number a month. I don't even remember. And, like, you you, you get paid on top of that. Um, I'm guessing it was less than a mafia hit, but I don't don't know what the – I don't know what the – I'm guessing that's, like, you know, I assume that the mafia in New York gets a certain amount. Like, if you're mafia in, like, Akron, Ohio, I really don't know. Albanian mafia versus uh, Chinese Albanian mafia. mafia. Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, every, everything's different. Like, I mean, you know, like it's everything's different now. I hope I don't get killed by anybody. After no, I mean, it makes sense. I live, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, right now. I'm pretty sure I can get someone to kill someone for fifty bucks. <laughs> it won't be mafia. That is dark, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, East Bay Ray, wow. East Bay Ray. Right, so um, I'm 30 years old. A friend of mine from college who became a successful lighting designer is getting married to this woman at a reasonably fancy church on like Fifth Avenue and 10th Street. If I was sa- in, in Manhattan, if, if I was savvy, I'd know the name of it. I don't. And so like I put on my suit, but I mean, I've got my long hair and, you know, it's like everyone there is pretty normal, but... Like, this was in the era when, like, you know, there were certain signifiers, and you could sort of pick out the three or four people. You could just kind of, like, sense the subculture on them. And, like, okay, there's the woman that I know from Pure Platters, the record store. And here's this other woman who's hanging out with her who's got kind of a look. So, like, she's probably that, too. And then there was this other guy that I couldn't place. And, like, he just looked weird. Like, really weird. Like, he was wearing this weird suit, and it didn't fit right. And, like, his glasses were, like, kind of askew. And, like, I couldn't tell if there was something wrong with him, you know, but he was hanging out with us and like, we got to talking to him and I was like, oh, he's an okay guy. So we're talking for some reason about high school and how, you know, shockingly none of us were cool in high school. And like, I tell some humiliating story about like trying to sell pot and failing. I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it could be one of a thousand humiliating stories from high school. And so this guy says, you know, the, the weird looking guy says like, well, you know, um, I went back to my, you know, uh, high school reunion. And like, you know, I was a really big nerd in high school. And like, I immediately think like totally unkindly. I was like, yeah, um, I could tell. Uh, and, and he's like, and I went, you know, but like, I, you know, I, I got out of high school and like, I developed a life and like, I, you know, I'd gotten in this band and like, we made a couple records and I went back to like my high school reunion and I thought they'd think I was cool. And like, you know, they, they didn't care. I was still like totally uncool. And I was like, oh, like Ray, that, that's an interesting story. What was the name of your band? And he was like, oh, I was in a band called the dead Kennedys. And I was like, I was like, holy, I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, you're East Bay Ray. Like, you're, you're not even leading with that. Like, dude, like, I, I would like put up the building for you when I was 16. Also, like, um, I asked him, this was not in the book, but I asked him, and th- this was before the lawsuits, but uh, I asked him what he was doing for music. And he said, I'm in a band with uh, Klaus from uh, the Dead Kennedys. I, I'm saying that for the listeners. I'm in a band with Klaus. It's instrumental. I really like it. No lead singer. <laughs> And then, and then, then I asked him like later. I was like, "Well, Ray, what do you do for a living?" He's like, "What do I do for a living? Every couple months, I go to my PO box, I open it up, and there's a royalty check there. That's what I do for a living." <laughs> and I was like, "Man, I was like, man, good for you. You fucking earn that shit. Like, some you, you guys carved out, you guys carved out the touring circuit with Black Flag. Like, We've been trying to figure that out for and a then, while, then, though. Like, what the what the level of band is that you can live off of royalty." 
Like, you know, well, the, hold on. Well, we, we can talk about I mean, his I'm, suit I'm, again. I'm, yeah. So we don't know what that check was. Right. <laughs> I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you, if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. So I don't want to just focus on on the book, although I mean I I do I'm I'm sure, fascinated yeah. by you you touched upon this the fact that you got a major publisher to put this out the way that it exists because I feel like let me say just starting off it's amazing and I, I love the book but I can imagine it being really hard to sell and really hard to for people for a lot of people to understand kind of like our podcast where we make a lot of references that I feel like people are just not going to get and either they like it or they don't but I was telling Bill earlier when we were talking about it that this is going to sound hyperbolic but uh but that your book is your memoir is kind of like the Moby Dick of memoirs where not not in the obviously you know more in the sense that like you'll have a chapter on something like how to how to find vintage amps at you know while you're on tour at at music shops or you have you know a kind of an abstract chapter that would be on you know the laugh that people give you when you tell them you're in a band in corporate situations things like that that like you would you would jump around and and I really enjoyed that did you try and write it more linearly to begin with and then play around with that? Or was that just always how you envisioned it? So, um, so a couple things, um, n- number one, like how, how it happened. Um, so I, you know, I had an agent from doing TV stuff and my wife and I left our jobs and like kind of fussed around and traveled a lot after she's older company. Um, cause we were very fortunate we got to do that, which is crazy. And so like, I was kind of not doing anything. I was back home and, um, my agent called me he's like, I've got a book idea for you. Come, come meet with me. I'm like, great. And his book idea was, and this is like 2009, 2010, was like, you know, there's this whole new movement of like people going off the grid to do organic things. Like they're making goat cheese, like, you know, they're making organic clothes. And like, there's kind of like a whole world building up in this and that could be an interesting world to explore. So I get reasonably excited about it. And through a chain of events that I don't remember, I am going to go out to lunch with an editor who I happen to know um, at Viking, which is an imprint of So did you eat organic cheese at that lunch? We did not. We went to a place called the Dutch, and I probably had fried chicken because the fried chicken there's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm really nerdy about food, and and so like I I sit down with this editor, and the editor's like, "What are you working on?" And I'm like, "Well, funny you mention that. I've got this book idea." And like I do the whole song and dance, and so like I do the whole thing, and at the end I'm like, "Well, what do you think?" And he's like, eh. "And I'm like, wow, like this is gonna be a long fucking lunch, man." And so he's like, well, what else are you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, like freelance writing this and startup stuff that, you know, but like, I got to tell you, this weird thing happened. Um, so I was in this band, like between the ages of 18 to 21. And like, you know, we, we didn't get hugely famous, but, you know, we put out records, we toured America and Europe and like, you know, we broke up when I was 21. Well, our records got reissued and we just got asked to reunite by this festival in the UK. And, you know, I think we're going to do it. And he was like, oh, really? So he's kind of <laughs> drawing me out about it over lunch in like kind of a very casual way. This guy's name is Cotty. He's been there a long time. He's very, very good at his job. Very taciturn and incredibly smart. And like, so I'm like, you know, blah, 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 Indie Rock Underground this, blah, 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 crazy touring story in Japan that. And like, you know, three quarters of the way through the lunch, he's like, that's your book. 
And I was like, really? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, so you want a guy, you want a memoir from a guy in the band that no one has heard of that's getting back together? And he's like, yeah. Who's the audience that he was in his mind for the book? So the, the pitch, I mean, I still did a book proposal, um, which, and like, we gave it to him first and he bought it. Um, and like, my, my argument was, all right, so I was in this band that you haven't heard of. That part isn't important. What's important is that there was this entire subculture that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people passed through. And that what I'm talking about is the experience of being with in that from a person who's not at the top of it. Like, this isn't the Dean Wareham one. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't Keith Richards, God forbid, you know. Um, I mean, it's not that. But, you know, by, I was able to see things on a very macro level because, like, I was, we were insulated from nothing. Like, we did all this ourselves and we built this amazing handmade culture. You know, I, I was able to do the song and dance of that. And, and I said, and a lot of people passed through it. Also, and I thought this was brilliant. I don't, I don't know if it mattered, but, um, you know, let's say, it's 1997 and you guys are publishers. And I'm like, guys, I've got a great memoir for you. It's a memoir written by a chef. He's not a famous chef. He's never cooked at a famous restaurant. And actually, I got to tell you the truth. He's not a particularly good cook and he'll admit that. But what he's done is he put together this amazing book about like, what is it like in the front lines, in the kitchen? And he tells it in a very real way because he has nothing to lose. Like he's out of the game, you know, or he's not trying to be famous. He's not trying to get, he's not trying to like, sell a cookbook office. He doesn't care. That guy is obviously Anthony Bourdain, rest his soul. And that book is Kitchen Confidential, which is an amazing book. And I was like, this is that, but for music. That's a great pitch, by the way. Thank you. I mean, and, 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 so, and so they bought, I mean, I don't think like no one had any illusions that it was going to sell 80 trillion copies. Do you think you sold more books than records? Well, so, so here's the funny thing. I don't know how many records Bitch Magnet sold because the company that put one of the companies won't tell us anything and the other company claims to have lost all their records could have been termites no no no, no <laughs> would you believe me i've i've like i looked at the contract i mean like seriously um i mean i, I had a guy tell me to face like he's like you can come after me i've got no paperwork like i got nothing i'm like you're an asshole is what you are he was the professor, <laughs> he was the professor. <laughs> <laughs> now you got it uh, but I mean, you know, I wrote this book a couple years ago and I, the bitch magnet stuff was reissued. We, we now have a label that gives us accounting, you know, like I get a very small royalty check every quarter. So, you know, go figure. Are you thinking of writing another book at some oh, point? Oh yeah, definitely. My, my next move is almost definitely another book. There's a couple of ideas I'm kicking around with my agent, which are, it's way too early to go into them because I really don't know what they're going to be yet. I mean, they're, they're like very, but I mean, it's, it's not a music book and it's not a memoir. It's, and it's nonfiction. It's nonfiction. Okay. I could picture a fiction one and for free. Okay. It's a novel about a band <laughs> where there's a professional in the band and the band uses the black car service to go on tour. <laughs> Just for free, from you, to, from my, it's a gift from you to me. I mean, he's getting increasingly like terrified, like calls from there goes again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, increasingly and, terrified calls. Like it's been three weeks. We really hope you've, you've enjoyed the car, but uh, and that, you, you could put yourself in it on CNBC saying Condé Nast, <laughs> uh, their stock went down because of their black car service. Uh, contract. I was actually thinking that your that your follow up should be all the depraved stories that happened during the book tour. Well, I got to, <laughs> I got to meet some friends and go out to some restaurants. And, you had some uh, nice and, wine, and and, 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 and and I lost my voice really badly, you know, at one point. So yeah, it, pretty 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 devastating stuff. <laughs> it's 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 the like the Motley Crue one, right? It, it's exactly <laughs> like the Motley Crue. Which, by the way, the, the, the oral history of Motley Crue that is fucking amazing. Holy shit. That is a great book. <laughs> that is a great book. Have you guys read it? Yes. Oh my god, it's definitely no, it's definitely on my worth list. reading. 
All right, so I, I'm not going to go into detail, but the the opening paragraph of that book, you're just like, okay, I am I am in this, and when you when you guys read it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's fucking. It insane. sets the stage perfectly. Yeah. It's, it, it's, oh my god, it is so great. It is so great, and and also like it's it's also terrifying because you're like, all right, so you know, um, Mick Mars is a lunatic, and Nikki Six is an insane drug addict, and Vince Neil is obviously a moron, but Tommy Lee's kind of cool, and then you get to the point where like. He's just casually talking about punching his girlfriend. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. They're like, oh, no, he's the villain. He's the worst. (laughs) It's like, oh, wow, you're all actually horrible fucking people. Like, you're really Vince Neil's still the worst. I mean, he had. Well, yeah, he he actually murdered somebody. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he actually. And, like, like, yeah, like getting in a car if you drink a case of beer. Yeah. Good move, asshole. Jesus. (laughs) So, last thing I need to ask about the book. You don't go into detail on it, but why do you hate Eye Against Eye by Bad Brains so much? (laughs) Like, I I like the earlier stuff better. I mean, like everyone does, but I mean, Eye Against Eye's not bad. I mean, I I, I probably I probably overstated that a little bit. I was I was angry about it at the time. I really just like the guitar sound, like that that. Really right. bumps me out. All right, you, you guys have taken this too far. This is not what this podcast. <laughs> no, is no, about, Jesse. Right? Well, Jesse was just talking to me about guitar sound the other day about how al- albums he can't listen to because the guitar sounds. <laughs> was it on the list? Bad Brains have almost bad a guitar set as the first antidote record. Wow, wow. Now I got. By the, I have an antidote T-shirt that I inherited from a friend of mine. I just recorded their new reunion record. Wow, how's the guitar sound? <laughs> Fucking excellent. <laughs> well, you, have, I think Jesse, you have a huge problem with like the SST spot. Guitar sound, oh, right? Spot, spot, spot. Jesse, you and I will go offline about this. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you, but I love those Black Flag records. Je- Jesse already does two podcasts. You could be on his podcast. It'd be no problem. <laughs> the Black Flag demos before my war came out are so much better than my war. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a fair fight. Not a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Let's get to the work. <laughs> do you think um at the end of all of it not to say that you're at the end of the, your career or anything like that but i mean when it's all said and done and you're you're closing up shop is it going to be the band that you see as your kind of life's mission or is it the work that you've done post bitch magnet and post post serious music in the sense that you're touring and, and trying to make a career out of it i mean i'd like to think that i've got like you know 20 or so years of productive work ahead of me but i mean like like seriously it's like i don't i mean like the, those early experiences are so powerful you know, like when, and like the, the significance of it was, you know, just, it was just so multi-layered that the music experiences of it were just so multi-layered. Like, you know, like I was so obsessive about music and like, all I wanted was to be in a band. And basically the first band I was in, like people really responded to like, and it just, it just happened and it happened very quickly. Like Sue Young was writing songs and like they were developing really quickly. And like, you know, in a year and a half, I was like, this is it's not just that it feels really good doing this and like I'm really proud that like we made it because I'm like this is really good like I will stack this up with like you know I'm not going to say we're better than Black Flag or Sonic Youth okay but like 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 we can stand like plausibly in this subculture like like we're we're really good like this is crazy and by the way I can't even really play guitar and these guys are going to figure that out sometime that's terrifying me but <laughs> but, but like, I mean, like like some, somehow it happened like like that was such a powerful feeling and like it erased like I, I had a um I was lit i was not popular in high school okay like i mean i was um uh, i was really nerdy i was small i was a bit of a loudmouth. like I, I was not liked you know I, I wasn't like the 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 pretty girls which as we all know it's such a thing i was like they they did not give a shit at all and you know all that stuff 
matters. And like, you know, and if people are mean to you, that matters. And you remember that. And there are people I remember. And if they're listening to this, I know who you are. And I'm going to come, I'm coming to fucking get you before I go. <laughs> but, 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 maybe, but more, but like, you know, just put this more on track, like, you know, to go from that to a college where you're like, oh, it's not that automatically everybody hates me. It's that I was walking into the wrong rooms and then finding a subculture that really means something to you. And then all of a sudden, like you have a part of that subculture and like you can travel with it. I mean, like that, that was incredibly powerful. I mean, I used, I, I stole this word from the writer, Laurie Moore, who's amazing. Um, and, uh, unorphaned. I mean, like this music unorphaned me and like, I intend to write more books. I intend to do more stuff. I mean, I'm not done yet. God knows. I mean, I can't be for a lot of reasons, but I mean, like I, that was just so powerful in so many levels. Like it taught me how to be in the world. It taught me how to operate in the world. I made a lot of mistakes. It taught me, but I mean like everything. I, I kept coming back to this on the Ink podcast because um, we, we would have this segment on the Ink podcast where there's like a very like kind of a, like we would have a little thing at the end where you just talk about something that you like that wasn't necessarily about entrepreneurship or about what we're talking about the podcast. And after a while, everyone would make fun of me because I would talk about like so-and-so musician died and i knew him or her and like, listen to this. And like, they would make fun of me about it. But I was like, you know, I learned everything from this world. Like I owe so much to this world, you know? And if you don't appreciate it, go fuck yourself. Cause like, like it saved me. I mean, and I, I don't use that term lightly. This music saved me. This culture saved me. Like, you know, learning how to be within it, like, you know, made me kind of a human being. Yeah. John, I feel like we could use what you just said as a promotion for our podcast. Cause Everyone who comes on here feels that way. It was everything. And like, I don't know how people experience music now. I mean, obviously we're all old enough to remember what it was like where you had to really work for it. And, and you know, like where you would hear about a band and it would take you a year to find them. And um, God, uh, Clay Tarver, who was in the band's Bolt, LaVolta, and Chavez, like had this great line where like, you know, there was like the weird older dude in town that you had to hang out with. And he was kind of like, like trying to find out who the Coke dealer was. Like you had to hang out with all these really <laughs> skinny people just to like hear the New York Dolls album or whatever, you know? But, but I mean like, yeah, that was cool. Like you would read about something in like the very few outlets that were there, like Rolling Stone, and then it would take you years to hear the fucking thing. I mean, and, and so, and, and the people you met, you know, were very important and you had to work to meet them. And, and like, I don't know if you were an outcast and then you find the subculture that's all outcasts and that sort of instantly understand you when you've spent, I'm speaking personally here, when you feel like you've spent your entire life, like being misunderstood, being prejudged in a way that's not to your advantage and not only being misunderstood, but like situations getting like physically dicey because you're misunderstood. Like you're with people at a party and someone makes a joke. And then all of a sudden, like five football players want to beat you up. And you're like, wait, what just happened? I mean, like that shit happened. And by the way, I had it pretty good. I mean, you know, I don't know. Do you guys remember the band? Um, fuck, fuck. Tales of Terror. Okay. So the, the singer from, I mean, they, they were lunatics, but the singer from Tales of Terror was walking down the street one night and a bunch of jocks yelled something out at the window at him and he yelled something back and one of them came out, punched him and he fell and hit his head in the sidewalk and he died. I mean, like that shit happened. And, and so to like find a place where, I mean, there, there's all these horrible terms for now, like safe space or, you know, I was seen, but I mean, I don't know, man, like I found my fucking tribe and I mean, I just have just really, to this day, really deep feelings about it. So you mentioned See Here in the book a bunch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite places oh, of all time. God, yeah. Do you feel like reading fanzines had an influence on your writing style or did it like, <laughs> did you have to relearn how to write after reading them? Um, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was a little of both. Cause I mean, I look at like journal entries. I, I, I did a lot of journal entries when I was touring because um, I, I mean, it felt like something important. And like, I just wanted to remember stuff because there was so much happening in the course of a day. And I was just really fascinated with all of it. And I didn't want to miss it. And I didn't want to not remember it. But uh, so like, I look back at that now and I, I thought I was being like, 
like this great young writer, and I was like, wow, this is kind of unreadable, and I'm glad no one's going to see it. Um, and then, like, <laughs> but you know, but you learn certain things about voice and about. Uh, the, 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 that I'm glad I learned. Most of that writing is pretty terrible, but there were some people like, like, you know, Gerard Cosloy who did Conflict. He's a, he's a very, very good writer. Very good natural writer. I mean, he's, he's just great. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple of others. He comes to mind first. That's, I mean, I don't look at those fanzines that much anymore. You ever read Beer Frame? Oh yeah, Paul, Paul Lucas is a really good writer. But that's kind of like, that's kind of like, no, that's not really punk rock writing. No, I know, but it's, it's, it, he has a, did you read his book? Inconspicuous Consumption, right? Yeah. It's eight pages dedicated to kraut juice. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I admire that obsession. And like, I met Paul when he was doing a fanzine called Hypertension and he, and he interviewed Bitch Magnet. Like, I mean, he wrote to, like, he wrote to our PO box and like, you know, we did an interview in Brooklyn when we came to that because that's how you did it. So, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, Paul's a good writer. Um, I really liked the writing of Byron Coley at the time, but I mean, I think it's probably best suited for like, I mean, like, and I don't mean to damn this with faint praise. Like, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think his writing is like extendable. To, I, I wouldn't want to do a book like that, you know? I mean, I, I see now it's like, it's kind of beatnik influence and that's fine. It's just not really my job. Did you have a favorite see here employee? Well, um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, like, let's see. I always felt a little weird around Ted because I felt bad that I was standing in the store for hours without, and then I'd buy something <laughs> for $2. But I mean, you know, Ruben was all right. But I mean, I liked, I liked Lyle the best because like, you know, we just come in and like shoot the shit. Like I had my, my horrible administrative assistant job um, on East 19th Street. And I knew that if I like boogied my ass down to see here, I could like bullshit with Lyle for 20 minutes before I had to boogie my ass back while eating a slice of pizza and like make it back to my desk in time. So yeah, probably Lyle. I'm a big Ruben fan. Uh, I was really excited because Ted came to see my band play once. Wow. <laughs> and I had like signed my zine there for like nine years. And I was like, I can't believe do we this. Know, do people know what Ted Gottfried's doing now? I have no idea. Yeah, me neither. I, I heard he was spotted on a um, fire escape 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, he's, probably, he's probably not that hard to find. I mean, the names are relatively common, but, you know, it's probably not impossible. Have I talked enough about work stuff? I don't know if you've really gotten to it. No, no. Now I want to try to get some free consulting time. <laughs> okay. So our podcast, there's kind of like a given of like the, the book you wrote. It's kind of like everyone who comes on and all of us, we kind of already went through this. We all, it's kind of a given. It's kind of implied. Is there any chance in hell, like a regular, the people that you work with would ever listen to this? and get anything out of it. I love your pitch of how you pitched your book uh -huh. and what the audience was. Yeah. So like our pitch is like, hey, you know, we have very unique individuals who have very unique experiences and they do really well in the world despite everything they had to go through, you know, and, and it's a lot of what they do is non-traditional. So that's kind of our pitch, but it's not as good as like Kitchen Confidential <laughs> for bands. <laughs> I mean... The, you're talking to people who learned, um, they learned at a very age how to do things that most people weren't doing for a long time. I mean, like they, they were effectively running small businesses. Um, they were dealing with, they were dealing with media. They were dealing with audience demands, branding, marketing, everything. They were dealing with someone might try to rip you off. I mean, you know, like, um, and, and like just what kind of moves do you have when it's three in the morning and you get a flat tire or like, or, or your gear gets stolen? Like, I mean, how, how do you think on your feet? I mean, like we had to do this on a, on a shoestring. And like, I mean, I want to be clear. Look, I mean, I, I grew up in a, I grew up in a perfectly comfortable fucking house. I had my own bedroom. Okay. Like I got nothing to complain about, but you know, like th that, that doesn't necessarily help you when there's the, um, possibly mobbed up promoter who's just, is not going to pay you. And he might have a gun. I mean, like, what do you do? You know, I mean, like, 
How, how do you, how do you, how do you, like what, what moves do you have in that situation? And also just how do you get noticed? How do you run a business? How do you keep track of stuff? Like, you know, at what point is the show worth doing and, and worth not doing when, when you're like sort of figuring out like an algebra equation of like, you know, pleasure and importance of doing this versus how much money we're going to lose versus how far we have to drive on this tour. Like, do we do this thing or that thing? Like, you know, what, what are the important things that force you to make decisions? Um, it, it forced a lot of adult skills on people who, I mean, I mean, we were kids. I was a I was a child, dude. I mean, like, I did not have a lot of life experience. And I mean, I, I take it you guys have read the Azarad book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. The chapter about dinosaurs is hilarious because you've got like these three kids, like they're like nineteen or twenty, like they don't even know how to talk to each other. And like, like, and like the, the accounts that Jay has of like listening to the two of them like arguing with each other, and the, the only thing that Lou and um, Murph can say to each other, are like, but man, and then the other guy would say that, and that, that's like a half hour argument. Like they, they can't even express themselves. I mean, like it was hilarious, but it was true. I mean, like you, you, you were dealing with people who didn't necessarily have social skills. And like, I realize this now, and this is actually one thing I kind of regret about the book. There were people in our world that had real problems that went beyond simple eccentricity eccentricity and like i understand that better now than when i wrote the book i mean i don't i didn't go after anybody that like you know I think that applies to, but like, I've got a more of an understanding about that. There were people who I came across with and who I was friendly with. And in retrospect, they were quite troubled. You know, like they had pretty significant mental illness issues or, you know, I mean, as well as like the people that had the, the substance abuse issues that you look back and you're like, yeah, um, I was able to walk out of that room. That person didn't, that person's dead now. That's sobering. And uh, it took me a long time to figure out. I guess what Bill's, you know, I, I think Bill's question is kind of, you kind of addressed it in the book with the, with the, the laughing coworker, because I think, you know, when you go into all the things that that person will never experience and you wish that they could, you know, you wish you would, that they knew what it was like to do this, or you wish that they knew what it was like to do that, but they don't. And then fuck you. That's kind of, as we're doing this podcast, we're kind of like, okay, are these universal truths that everyone's going to at least somehow relate to in a, I felt like an outcast, even if it was for five minutes when I was 15 or, you know, or I respect this, even though it's not a world that I live in. And I think your book is a perfect example of that, of something that, you know, just someone who reads it, who knows shit about any kind of underground punk, indie, whatever you want to call it, scene, are they still going to get who you are and where you're coming from? Maybe not at the same depth that someone who lived it as well is going to, but I do think that there's, not to say that someone should write a How to Win Friends and Influence People type book about the punk rock scene, but I mean, there is, I think, things that the world would be better off if kids did know all the things that we had to learn at an early age, setting up a merch table and things like that. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, it's it, like like the big themes are like self-sufficiency. Um, I, mean, I, was, I was trying to think of the term like and it's like understanding the importance of like charting your own path and like that that you really do control your own destiny and that and that you can make things happen and a lot of times i mean because i'm old i'll say it's as easy as picking up the phone i mean a lot of it's just like having the balls to like reach out to people i mean we, we learned that you had to do that and so it was very easy for me to translate that into being a journalist which turned out to be a lot of the job like you just have to convince people to talk to you very quickly and you have to be not afraid about calling up strangers and and you also have to be comfortable with people saying no uh, and like we are all of the bands we're talking about we heard no a lot like we got ridiculed sometimes you know we got into dicey situations we had to and um there are colleagues I've really enjoyed and that I'm really good friends with even um, through journalism that, they, and I look at them and I kind of expect everyone to have some kind of subcultural experience or some kind of like thing that they were into. 
And like most people just don't. And like a lot of people, like the, the colleagues I'm thinking about, like, you know, they're very smart. They went to good schools. They come from like, you know, like intact families, but like, they just like, this is just Mars to them. Like they, 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 they were, they were doing the things they were getting grades. They were, you know, like they, they were focused on their path forward in a very specific way. Do you think it's chance that that happens? I mean, like, do you think that because they never bought a weird album because they liked the way the cover looked and that's the only thing that stopped them? Or do you think that some people are kind of built to join into this and some people are just never going to notice it? I mean, like most people are really normal. <laughs> like, like everybody that, uh, you know, on this podcast we're recording, like, you know, our lives are like indelibly marked by how much we love music and how obsessive we are about it. I hate music. What? <laughs> yeah, I, we, have, we have Charlie on to, to counter this. <laughs> I, I, I Believe me, I, I, I do too. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but I love it too. It's just fucking complicated. So, but most people don't have stuff like that or it's a sports team. Most people have a very, very casual relationship with like, you know, their, the music they listen to or the books they read. I mean, you know, we, we don't like, we, we really go crazy about this stuff. And most people don't. Speaking of sports teams, you said uh book doctoring. Is that like when the picture doctors, the baseball? Yeah, but it's, but it's legal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like it's ghost writing, rewriting. I mean, I've I've got a I'm working on I'm working on one such project right now. I'm actually I have the notes right here. And so can you can you go into a little detail about how that works for, for our audience? And does Doctor Rock do that too? <laughs> Don't really know. And um, you know, m- m- much much respect to Doctor Rock, who is honestly a much better musician than I'll ever be. Um, so uh, h- how does it work? It's a variety of like you know giving advice on like how a book should be shaped and like the order of chapters, um, and also just getting in and like rewriting stuff. Like in this case. The form it's taking for this specific project is, I can't say who it is because like I signed a contract and blah, 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 sorry to be boring. Although like, it's not like, you know, it's not Stephen King, you know. Um, There's a person I know who is finishing up a nonfiction book on a topic that I find interesting. Uh, This person has an insanely tight deadline. And so because I've worked with this person before uh, and I kind of understand how this person works, like this person is sending me chapters that are kind of they have all the information they need but they need to be like reshaped and kind of rewritten and i rewrite it and i kick it back to this person and it's up to this person to like you know like take it change it you know listen to it you know it's like editing rewriting basically how many times does it go back and forth in that process well i mean with with this process i because of the time frame like i'm getting a chapter from the writer i work on it um i redo whatever i need to redo i send it back to the writer and then we're going to look at everything again when it's like everything is done because then you want to see how the book flows and like oh like we we said this thing already so we got to take it out 50 pages later or this chapter actually makes more sense here and this part should go there so it's probably just twice I mean, I think you can be really obsessive about it. I spent a lot of time on my book. I mean, like I rewrote, after I had like a rough draft of a chapter, like I would rewrite it 10, 12 times. I mean, like I, I got, I got yeah. really, because I, I, I was, um, my basic feeling was that um, like, as, as I've been talking about, like this world was very important to me and it gave me so much. And I really wanted to do right by the topping, by the people in it. Like, I didn't want, I, I desperately wanted people to come up to me and say like, yeah, you, you, you got it right. I didn't want people to be like, yeah, you know, you really have asked that. Like, I, I just, I, I don't want to sound corny or self aggrandizing but like, I just wouldn't be able to live with myself if that happened. Well, you did so, so many I, interviews for it too. I mean, you, you yeah. reached out to so many people to, it yeah, almost seemed more like to, more con- than 60 or something like that. to confirm you know, to, I, I guess, to confirm what you were thinking about certain things or even just to, to sometimes contradict you. You know, well, I thought I mean, that I was wanted, really interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I needed to be contradicted on stuff, but I also like I, very soon, like it needed to be a book about this subculture and this time 
as evidence through one band's experience, but with other voices in it, as opposed to like, I'm telling you all about my band. Cause like, I mean, that, that's, that is rarely enough. And like, I mean, I, we just haven't done enough crazy shit for it to be worthwhile. You know, like Keith Richards can open up his book with an account of how like he's, it opens with him, you know, getting pulled over in Arkansas with like suitcases full of heroin in the trunk. I mean, like that didn't really happen to us. Like we can't really compete with that, you know? Probably Thank didn't God. happen to him either. I, I'm willing to believe it kind of <laughs> happened. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> they got the mug shot. As we like to say, there's paperwork, you know? <laughs> you can look it up. Well, this, Bill told me we were going to talk about businesses in this and stuff. So, I mean, <laughs> what do you want to know? I mean, I don't think we talked about anything. Bill said, okay, I'll give you a question. No, no, Charlie, I said that you, you should have some questions about businesses. I got Every a day. question. Okay, I can ask about a comp- corporation to start, like, any type of thing. Now, Tesla's market cap today is bigger than... Uh, GM, Ford, Chrysler, I forget, Chrysler, Honda, Toyota, BMW, all these companies combined. Can you talk to that? Is that crazy? And to be, I, I want to put this out there. I am holding uh, three puts in uh, Tesla right now. Oh, dude, dude, if you're holding puts in Tesla, you know a hell of a lot more about investing than I do. So, that, so that's <laughs> okay. So, like, so, so there's a couple of things. Is it crazy? Yes, I think it's crazy. But you know, the stock market is a bet on future performance. You know, do we think that does Tesla look like it will be an ongoing concern that will succeed? Uh, I would say yes, much more so than 18 months ago. Is there going to be widespread adoption of electric vehicles? I think that's a to and they make a pretty damn good car now is it ridiculously overvalued yes absolutely what I think one reason why that's happening is because, um, I mean, I'm not an expert about this stuff uh, at all, but there's a lot of money floating around that needs to be invested. And there, there are most of the safe instruments don't have any return. So there's a lot of money piling into the stock market. There's also like, there's some controversy as to how much of an effect this is, but I think that there is an effect with Tesla. Um, there are a lot of dudes and it's almost exclusively dudes like sitting at home, like following the Robert, the Robin Hood guys. Yeah. Like Ro- Robin Hood guys, like it, it and, and, and they're doing a lot of day trading and there's certain stocks that that are really big with the Robinhood crowd and Tesla's one of them. So I think I think there's a Robinhood effect too. But I mean, you know, when you get like they're producing like what, 300,000 cars a year and these other companies are producing like 15 million or something. And it, well, it is nuts. But, you know, another way of I mean, this is not the way to look at it. But a million years ago, there was a tulip bubble. There was a tulip bubble a million years ago, but maybe less than a million years ago, <laughs> like 40, 45 years ago, the Daily News was on strike. Oh, man. Char- Charlie was involved with that. Yeah, that was in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. Okay, that so, so the Daily News was on strike and the Daily News at the time was the biggest newspaper in the world by circulation, um, the biggest newspaper in America by circulation, mm-hmm. like 3 yeah. million copies a day. At the same time, it was losing money. Mm-hmm. It was. And I remember asking my dad, like I heard that I was like nine or 10 or whatever. And I was like, how is that possible? And my dad didn't have an answer, but the answer is they were running the business poorly. Like if uh, this is not the case, but if Tesla were making 300,000 vehicles a year, they were going to scale up substantially and they were wildly profitable. And all of the big guys had enormous legacy costs, which they do, and were wildly unprofitable. Their pension companies more than their car companies. Exactly. I mean, and like, if you look at it that way, I mean, it's it's unfair in the real world, but I mean, you start to understand valuation. But I want to be clear about this. That dichotomy I'm setting up is not true. Like, you know, I'm assuming GM is still a pretty damn good business. Ditto Toyota. But but there are lots of things. And also it's got a tech overlay and that's that always helps. I mean, but you just, these guys... It, they're not all going to fall asleep. If everything goes to electric cars, they're going to figure out how to get some of the market. And like VW already has a lot of the market in Europe. 
You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's just nuts. Well, I mean, Teslas are, they're legitimately really good cars. Like, they're really good. I think there's been some quality control. I, I won't argue that. I won't, I won't argue that. But I'm just saying it is, they're not going to be worth more than all these car companies combined. I strongly agree with you that it's overvalued. Um, so everybody should buy a put on Tesla. I'm right? absolutely not saying that at all. Because I, I, I don't know what the valuation is. I don't know what the revenues are. I don't know what the projections are. But, but the other thing is that... It's okay for me to say that. I'm not getting in trouble with the SEC. Well, I mean, I'm not getting in trouble with the SEC either. I just I don't, I don't people please don't take stock advice from the killed by death podcast <laughs> i mean like you, you can get your fucking face ripped off pretty fast in the stock market but a lot of it does have to do with i mean i don't know what the current pension situation at gm is i guess if they went through bankruptcy it's probably not that bad but i mean you know you do start looking at things with companies and you start understanding and like i mean i don't do that analysis that's like we were writing about entrepreneurship we were writing about running companies and like being productive and stuff like that and like the media journalism i was doing was about media companies which tend to not be run that well. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, I could tell you I, the daily news strike. I went, I was on um, Flatbush Avenue, yeah, yeah. Uh, like midnight and I was in the deli and these guys with masks came on and they said, you selling the daily news tomorrow? And they're like, yes. And like, we're going to burn down your fucking store. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a burning car <laughs> four blocks away. And then the next day I was walking on the street with Charlie and things started hitting me. We were walking by the picket line, and I looked to my left, and Charlie's walking down the street with the Daily News open. <laughs> Good job, dude. So that's why that's why I wanted him on this podcast. Good job. <laughs> well, I mean, but yeah, but that was it was a different time for you. I went out of my way to buy that. It wasn't yeah. easy. <laughs> no shit. But for the record, for the record, I'll never buy the Daily News right, again. Well, it, well, it's it's a shadow of what it was. But Charlie, you have plenty of copies of, a, of at least one uh, issue of the Daily News. I know that. <laughs> Was that were you on the cover of the Daily News, Charlie? Was that the one you were on the cover of? That's the one I was on the cover of. Yeah, and that's why I'll never why buy it. I'll send you. Cover? I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you a picture, John. They freaking did a hit on me. That's why. <laughs> These they're freaking they they are so corrupted. John, we'll email you the cover. It's it's definitely worth seeing. If you want to do if you want to do a piece awesome. on them and how the Daily News is corrupt and that they're freaking doing Karanza's dirty work and a bunch of thugs, you can freaking. Well, that. let's talk about John. Do you have anything in the works now that you want to talk? about or is everything kind of hush hush right now i mean it's like it's it's book ideas in this book project and this band that i'm in with Orestes, which i haven't mentioned which is called we contain multitudes we, we've kind of been in stealth because um we don't have any product yet and we had a lot of great plans for 2020 we were going to uh do shows in europe and have a record come out and um something got in the way can't remember what it is <laughs> Can't remember what it is. Um, no except, problem. This except is, I have this, this low-grade anxiety about it all the time. We don't have any time or place here. So yeah, that, I mean, I, I should have more stuff to promote. I guess um, you, you can you can buy my no, book. No, that's the, fun. The, the, the that's big... fun. We, we don't we don't have that many listeners yet. It's fine. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and the Discord stuff is still in print, and uh, Temporary Residence is an excellent uh, company for issuing it. Blah 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 blah. Awesome. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here, and your mom is going jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com.